Hello and welcome back to the Climate Bonds Cafe, serving up a hot selection of news, talking points and debates in the world of sustainable finance. Today we're talking about agriculture opportunities in Brazil. Now, Brazil's a very interesting case study in this sort of area. The country ranks as the seventh largest greenhouse gas emitter worldwide. The agriculture sector itself accounts for a third of greenhouse gas emissions. It's a sector that is desperately crying out for best practice as we try and move to a low carbon transition. But really what it needs is the knowledge and framework to make that change possible. With that in mind, Climate Bonds have launched an investment opportunity in the agri-food sector in Brazil paper, which we'll cover a little bit today. But our guests are going to talk broadly about why transition is such a hot topic in the agri-food sector, maybe some of the gaps that companies are facing when it comes to transition strategies, and actually, how do we make that change possible? We'll be publishing the paper in English and Portuguese, so if you've got a special, specific interest in Brazil, I highly recommend staying tuned to listen to our guests today. So I'll just say hello to both of you and thanks so much for joining me. First of all, I'll say hello to returning Leonardo Gava from Climate Bonds. How are you doing, Leo? Great to have you with us. Hi, Barney. It's such a pleasure to be here. Always fun to, to be in those podcasts and always very informative. Thank you so much. Pleasures. Pleasures all mine. I'm hoping the informative side of things comes from you today. And uh, also we've got Peter Elwin coming from Planet Tracker. How are you doing, Peter? Hi, Barney. Yeah, doing really well. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, we've got, I mean, we've got loads to talk about today. We're going to be talking about, I mean, broadly, I guess, uh, opportunities in Brazil in the agri-food sector. It's an area I'm particularly fascinated in the South American context. So I'm I'm sure we'll kind of talk about all sorts of other things and stray from the uh, the usual agenda. But I mean, Peter, just to kind of give people a bit of a run through, maybe who are a little less familiar, can you just talk to me about your role and a little bit about who Planet Tracker actually are? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a director of fixed income and head of the food and land use program uh, at Planet Tracker. And Planet Tracker is a, a non-profit think tank focused on the financial sector. Um, so we're aiming to use finance as the lever for change in the underlying systems that we focus on. Um, obviously, one of the systems we look at is food systems, uh, both the dry side and the wet side. I had a, I have a colleague who looks at uh, aquaculture and oceans. Uh, and then we also look at materials transition as well. So we're looking at textiles and plastics particularly. Uh, and then we have a, another sort of strand to our uh, to our programs that looks at uh, influencers. And we're focused particularly on the advertising agencies at the moment. So. A variety of themes that we look at, but fundamentally we're using finance uh, as the lever to affect change, which is why it's really been interesting to be uh, talking with you and, uh, and Climate Bonds Initiative today. Absolutely. I'm, I'm already thinking we could get hours of, of conversation in. I think we could we could cover so much there. Um, I mean, yeah, as you say, just sticking with the, the, the agri-food sector. I mean, Peter, why, why is transition such a hot topic in, in the sector? I mean, I guess especially in Brazil. 
Yeah, I mean, Brazil is a really good sort of case study, I think. Uh, I mean, transition needs to sort of happen right across the world. Uh, the fundamental challenge with uh, with the sort of the agri-food sector and the food system is that it is responsible for around about a third of humanity's GHG emissions. So it has a, a massive sort of carbon footprint. Um, it also has a very heavy uh, footprint on nature. It's causing a lot of harm to nature. And frankly, it's not actually succeeding in feeding uh, the global population uh, adequately or sufficiently with sort of healthy food. So, so the food system itself is, uh, is failing in a number of ways. I mean, you could say that the food system is eating itself uh, in many respects, and it needs to be transformed. Now, part of that transformation requires individual food system companies to actually change their business operations. And that's the transition uh, that we're all sort of talking about. Individual businesses transitioning from an unsustainable approach to, uh, to create a system that is climate, nature and people positive. And in, I mean, in terms of this sector, then, Peter, I mean, I guess the first thing is a, a robust knowledge of, of the work that needs to be done in the sector that, that I guess is kind of obvious. But I mean, what are the transition plans? I mean, do companies in this space have my sort of favorite combo of, of plans that are both, you know, robust, credible, but also ambitious? Yeah, that's a really good way of, uh, of summarizing them, actually, Barney. Um, and the simple answer is uh, sort of yes and uh, and no. Um, so, you know, a transition plan is is conceptually very simple. It's what any company requires if it's to successfully transition its business operations to be aligned with a, a climate and nature positive future. So it sets out targets, as you were saying, and those targets need to be uh, ambitious targets to uh, for the company to actually reduce its GHG emissions. And it needs to set out how it's actually going to do this, so that the capex that it's going to spend, the investment that it's going to make. Um, and it needs to say by when those things are going to happen. So what are the milestones on its journey to, say, 2030 or, or 2040 or 50 or you know, whatever the target date for the plan is. So it's a project plan, in essence. Um, and a good project plan is a good transition plan. A good transition plan is a good project plan. But the question whether system, whether food system companies have uh, adequate plans in place, and whether they're executing on them, well, some do, um, and unfortunately, uh, quite a few don't. Uh, and our analysis shows that some companies are definitely leading the way, um, but too many either have no plans at all, um, which is, I think, uh, moving towards the minority position, but is still uh, a surprisingly large number of companies. Uh, or other companies have plans that are weak. You know, you mentioned ambitious targets, and unfortunately, quite a few companies have targets that really are not nearly ambitious enough. Um, or they have plans that look very good, but actually when you dig into the detail, and we've done this with a number of food system companies, you dig into the detail and actually uh, the reality doesn't match the words. They're not really spending the money they need to. They're not investing in technology and change in a way that will actually bring the plan to fruition. So there's a lot more to do. Leonardo, I can see you nodding enthusiastically there in the, the little window uh, on my screen. Um, I, I guess a lot of what Peter's saying kind of resonates there. But I mean, for you, what are the main gaps, I guess, that agri-food companies face when it comes to their sort of transition strategies? Yeah, but you know, completely echo Peter here. Uh, I mean, I would say that the main challenge today and the main gap is to be 1.5 aligned, because this is actually what transition means. And we need to align business model to the Paris Agreement targets. We need companies to have a 1.5 aligned transition pathways. And to be honest, most of the companies, they are either not 1.5 aligned and those who are, 
they do not verify and testify this according to a standard or criteria. So it's really hard to, to, to actually make sure that this transition pathway that those companies are disclosing is actually going to you know, change the business as usual and going to make us reach the Paris Agreement targets. And I think that uh, related to this, also companies fail to, to show how they're actually going to change their business model to something that is aligned. I mean, most of the agri-food companies, they, they, they stay to have this transition pathway, but in the end, I mean, if you look at their future business model, it's not that different from what we see today. And this is, this is a big challenge. And it's like talking about oil and gas. I mean, uh, if an oil and gas company needs to change their transition, their business model, they need to become some sort of renewable company in the future. But I mean, they need to prove that they are doing this actually. And also related to this, I would say that the third and biggest gap is those companies, they don't have a clear financial plan on how they're going to fund this transition or how they're going to actually uh, translate expenditure to meet this future business model that we are looking for. So uh, this is a very important part of our transition framework at Climate Bonds Initiative. It's not just, I mean, you need to have ambition, you need to have plans, but you need to show investors and um, everyone how you are going to fund this plan, what kind of, where you are spending CapEx, OPEX, where you are sourcing funding, how, who are the investors and th this kind of thing. So I would say that these are the three main gaps, being 1.5 aligned, have, having like a future business model that is actually different from the one you have today and how you are going to fund this transition towards a future business model. So with, I mean, with that in mind, Leonardo, I mean, yeah, you, you mentioned a little bit there about the uh, the transition framework we've got at Climate Bonds. Just for the people who are a little bit less familiar, what does that constitute and, and how does that sort of relate to maybe companies in the sector who, who have the volition, you know, they really want to do more, they want to be more ambitious, but maybe are, are sort of struggling for the the means, you know, to, to actually get this done. Can you just talk to us a little bit more about that if you can? Uh, sure, Barney. So the Climate Bonds Transition Framework is basically composed by what we call the five transition principles and the five transition hallmarks for transitioning companies. Uh, the five transition principles are basically the guidelines uh, which transition plans and goals need to follow uh, in order to be credible. And the five transition hallmarks is a step-by-step -step process companies uh, need to follow uh, in order to prove that they are developing and implementing those transition plans in a credible way. So we're starting off with the transition principles. As I mentioned, we have five of them. And the first one is perhaps what, what, what we have been talking about in the previous questions. I mean, transition pathways and goals, they must be 1.5 aligned. So they must be aligned to the Paris Agreement targets. This is a very important principle. The second principle is, well, transition uh, pathways and goals, they need to be 1.5 aligned, but also they need to be established by the scientific community and not by any specific entity. So they need to be science-based. This is also super important. Uh, the third principle is that transition pathways and goals uh, don't count offsets and count scope one, two, and three emissions as much as possible. Uh, 
this is a very uh, hot topic and for some controversial. I mean, we do not consider offsets or carbon credits or anything that is offset related to be a credible transition plan. And this is because we want companies to transition within. We want companies to employ all kinds of technology they have available in order to reduce their global emissions before accessing carbon offsets. We understand that for some sectors, there is some sort of residual emissions when uh, companies have already employed all technology they have available. In this case, yes, but first, before accessing that market, you need to prove that you have done everything that you can by yourself. And of course, scope one, two, and three upstream as much as you can. This is, I mean, the goal is to reduce your global emissions as much as you can. Principle four is uh, climate bonds. Uh, we take in for credible transition goals and pathways. We take into account technological viability, but not economic competitiveness. Uh, and that's because, I mean, you know, there's lots of technologies out there that could help companies to reduce their carbon footprint and other uh, also address other issues in their value chains. They're not yet economic viable, but we want to direct the flux of capital towards those technologies so they can be viable in the future. And the last principle is, of, of course, I mean, uh, transition means to follow a pathway. Pledges and policies by themselves are not sufficient. You need to have the pathway and you need to follow that pathway and prove that you follow the pathway. That's a pretty comprehensive walkthrough. I mean, uh, Peter, before we, uh, I want to come back to, to Leo to discuss uh, one or two more specific things, but from your sort of, um, I guess, an overview, uh, how do you think kind of companies in the sector will evolve when it comes to this kind of environmental awareness in the in the coming years, we've heard a lot from from Leonardo there about, well, I guess a kind of a run through of, of what is needed, what we would like, uh, everything else. But I mean, what are the main drivers of, of change in the sector, do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and I, I agree. I think the sort of the principles and the hallmarks that uh, Leo's laid out are really good sort of a roadmap for companies to follow when setting up their own transition plans and, and executing against those. In terms of the drivers of change, well, regulation will definitely be one of the key drivers. Um, I think uh, regulation will increase. You know, we're already seeing evidence of supply chain due diligence rules in the, in the EU, for example. We're seeing evidence of carbon border taxes. And going back to the point I made at the beginning that the, the GHG footprint of the food system is very heavy. And therefore, if you start seeing carbon border taxes imposed, potentially components of the food system get challenged by that. These these regulatory actions will only increase as governments begin to realise that they need to sort of drive change uh, harder and faster. Um, and the food system is also a victim of the climate change that it's contributing to. You know, we've seen all sorts of, uh, of you know, storms and sort of uh, uh, natural uh, natural disasters over the last couple of years, wildfires and the like. That has an impact on food production. It has an impact on food manufacturing companies that may have their factories situated in a flood area. Obviously, it has an impact on consumers, therefore on food retail and food service companies. So the food system is a victim of climate change and it needs to adapt. So that drive towards adaptation will be another uh, sort of key force operating on food system companies. And then I think the third one, which is obviously um, sort of meat and drink from a planet tracker perspective, is the financial system. 
You know, investors and banks are becoming more aware of their own risks. They're becoming more ambitious about their desire to allocate capital in ways that actually incentivizes businesses to align to a 1.5 degree outcome and, and also to a sort of, you know, global biodiversity framework coming out of the Kunming Montreal conference last year. So the financial system um, is going to be focused less on funding business for usual and more on investing in sustainable activities. And that will raise the cost for businesses that continue down an unsustainable path. And as Leo was suggesting, it will incentivize those businesses that are looking for opportunities. And all of those forces will push food companies to adapt. Um, and obviously those that get ahead of the curve stand a good chance of making significant gains over their competitors. So sort of economic incentives uh, come into play as well. Um, and so investing in things like regenerative practices, uh, investing in alternatives to industrial meat, investing in healthy foods and investing in fully supply, fully traceable supply chains will all pay significant dividends for food system companies. And there are big opportunities to come from cutting food loss and waste. You know, we waste about a third of the food that we produce. It never actually reaches the mouths of the people it's supposed to. Um, so there's massive efficiency opportunities there. Uh, and that's a, that's a big win from a financial perspective, let alone a planetary and sort of, you know, human perspective. And then from a very simple climate perspective, if you're a financial institution or you need a company with ambitions to get aligned to 1.5 degrees, you've got to stop deforestation. It's got a massive GHG footprint. It's a really, really simple thing. And particularly in countries like Brazil, where it is a major, major problem, um, it has huge benefits from an economic and an ecological perspective if you stop deforestation, as well as significantly reducing your GHG footprint. And the same is true of methane emissions. The agri-sector actually produces more methane than the energy sector. Um, so if we can cut industrial meat production and cut particularly uh, the levels of industrial beef production, then we cut those methane emissions. That has a very dramatic effect on our carbon footprint uh, in a relatively short period of time. So all of these factors will drive, uh, I believe, quite significant change uh, in the food system. And as I say, the companies that, uh, that get ahead of that curve uh, will significantly benefit. The ones that uh, ignore the sort of the change that is coming uh, will suffer the consequences. Spot on. No, absolutely. I, I, I think, I, you know, I'm, I'm with you there in that I share a lot of optimism, but um, yeah, it's, it's monumental challenges there. It keeps it very interesting. I get the sense this is sort of the sort of topic we could we could have a whole series on. Um, Leonardo, I, actually, that segues me nicely. I mean, the, the whole reason we planned this recording and, and uh, we thought we've got to get you sat down with, with Peter Elwin was because we had this investment opportunity report for the agri-food sector in Brazil. My thinking was, there's so much to cover in this area. Let's let's walk people through it a little bit more. Let's have a bit more of an overview rather than just bang straight in with as uh, a new report launch. But we should probably talk about it a little bit. I mean, what can you what can you tell us about this? Uh, thanks, Barney. So uh, this is a report we launched in our global conference, and we are now about to launch the Portuguese version, the first version in English and now in Portuguese. Uh, for the Brazilian public. And the goal of this report is basically present this transition framework from Climate Bonds Initiative and how it applies to agri-food companies. So we present two case studies. We run through these transition uh, principles and hallmarks with two companies. Those are randomly picked. It's not investment advice. We could have chosen any company. Those are just case studies. So we use Syngenta, 
the input provider and a Magia Brazilian uh, producer and trader. And we run through those principles. We identify gaps, uh, things that they are doing right, things that they need to improve and so on. Uh, also, after the case studies, there's like kind of a sneak peek on the opportunities in the country when it comes to instruments, especially in the capital markets. Uh, the capital markets for agriculture in Brazil is kind of growing a lot recently and uh, farmers are shifting from, you know, uh, the controlled interest rates, lines of credit towards more no controlled interest rates. Uh, so there's lots of opportunity there uh, as a lever for sustainability. So we, we, we make sort of run through these opportunities. Uh, also, we, we do like a short analysis and comments on the, the Brazilian sovereign issuance. Uh, uh, you guys sure know this. Brazil has just issued its first uh, sovereign labeled uh, bond. Uh, it's labeled sustainability. Uh, some of the proceeds are dedicated to the agri-food sector. So there is an opportunity growing there. Uh, Climate Bonds also is working a lot of trade finance uh, right now as a lever for sustainability in the sector. So uh, we do a sort of a short, very short analysis on the instruments available in Brazil for these ACCs, ACEs, and so on. And we close this report with the main barriers, challenges, and looking forward in the sector. Uh, you know, in Brazil, the sector, the, the agricultural sector is growing a lot, right? So it has grown a lot over the past 30 years. Uh, it's a booming sector is very important for the economy if you consider the whole value chain for the agri-food sector what i mean what we call agribusiness uh from input producers machinery producers uh, to the traders and retailers the sector is responsible for uh roughly 25 percent of the country's gdp so it's very important not just for food security but also for social justice just transition and so on uh the sector in Brazil is also uh, very important when it comes to innovation. Uh, Brazil has a very productive innovation landscape. We have more than 1,500 startups working just with agriculture, with technology, technologies for the agri-food sector. We have a national public research company called Embrapa that is dedicated mainly to fundamental research in the field. Uh, most of this growth we have seen in agriculture in Brazil uh, is due to uh, Embrapa's work in the country. And all those small companies uh, working with innovation in Embrapa right now, they are turning their eyes for sustainability. They, are, they, they recognize that we need to change the way we do things. They have done a lot, but uh, there's still lots to be done. And, you know, also uh, in Brazil right now, I feel that, and Peter mentioned this, uh, international, international policies are now like uh, a pressure for farmers, association companies. We have the UGR, the CBAN, CCDDD. So those are pressures. Uh, to be honest, uh, the sector sees this as a future pressure is still because, and being honest, again, Europe uh, perhaps is not the most important market for Brazilian goods. If this pressure one day comes from Asia and the Middle East, and I think it will because, you know, Europe is kind of spreading this thinking around, then, I mean, farmers will need to adapt and we need to make sure they, 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 they comply with the requirements. If not, they're not going to access their major market. So we do some sort of walk through this process. But this is uh, all about the report. So it's a very summarized, straightforward report on how investors should look at companies and uh, what are the opportunities in the country to invest.
I feel like every time I sit down with either of you, I'll make lots of notes, do lots of reading separately, and then I can sit down with you both for about half an hour and I'm making, making sort of frantic mental notes. Go and read this, go and check this out. It's the sort of thing where the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. And, and Brazil's such a, an interesting concept, sort of mini concept in this area. There's just so much going on. It's a very interesting case study. Um, so yeah, thank you. But um, yeah, lots of lots of extra homework for me. Um, Peter, I'm going to give you the the final word then just in terms of the the investment landscape in Brazil. I guess from a planet tracker point of view, um, is there anything you'd like to add there? Or is there anything in 2024 you'd really like to see in this, this sector particularly? No, I think uh, Leo's really summarised it very well. As he says, the sort of agri-food sector is incredibly important in Brazil. Brazil is very uh, vibrant and innovative. Um, but we published a report a little while ago now called Destroying uh, Brazil's Aircon, um, looking at the impact that deforestation is having on the wider economy. And I think it's a really interesting case study of how a country can, well, in, uh, in terms of the English phrase, cut off its nose to spite its face. So, you know, you are allowing depletion of the natural capital base of the country, which then has an impact on things like hydropower. It has an impact on renewable energy production in terms of biofuels, obviously has an impact on food production. But then you get other effects like um, much higher regional temperatures. So you get sort of local heat islands. And we've seen this happening in a number of cities around the world where you get urban heat islands, which can be 10 degrees hotter than the average of the surrounding area, even another part of the city. And this is a major problem for countries like Brazil, where you have significant um, areas where there are sort of poor people crowded in together without the facilities to uh, to adapt to climate change. Uh, and that social problems coming out of that um, can potentially be immense. So I think Brazil is a really, really interesting case study of a country that, that could go down a really quite a bleak path if it continued down the business as usual sort of pathway. But if it transforms as it as it has the ambition to do, um, then it really can be a can be a world leader in terms of showing how nature can actually become part of the solution to our sort of conjoined nature and climate crises. Um, and the 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 outcome, the sort of a, uh, the the view in the future could really be very optimistic and, and Brazil can turn itself into a sort of a nature based powerhouse. Um, feeding the world and generating huge economic sort of benefits for for the population. Um, one of the key things we'd really like to see just as a sort of a flag to show that that's happening is Uruguay issued a, a bond linked to deforestation. Uh, we'd love to see Brazil do the same because I think that would be a real uh, sort of, you know, a keystone moment um, from a Brazilian perspective. Um, but we'll wait and see whether that actually does happen or not. But I'm I'm very optimistic. I think Brazil is an incredibly innovative and vibrant place and has all the tools in place already to, uh, to to really drive itself forward to become a sustainability leader in the future. Take note, Brazil, and from a personal point of view, I'm a sucker for ending on an optimistic note. Uh, in, the, in the spirit of not burying my head in the sand, though, Peter, where can people find that report that you mentioned? Uh, so that's on the Planet Tracker website. Um, yep, just go onto the website, www.planet-tracker.org, and, uh, and you'll find all our research there. It's all free to access. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you, Leonardo. Great to have you both with us. Lots of uh, lots of reading for me, probably a, a lie down after this. But uh, thank you so much, both of you, for your time. Really, really appreciate having you on. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Such a pleasure. Thanks, Bernie.
Leonardo Gavin, Peter Elwin there with an absolute whirlwind of lively discourse. Always a pleasure to have them on, but plenty to listen to, to read up on around this topic. If you're listening to this on our Spotify channels, head over to social media, search at Climate Bonds. We're going to be publishing this paper in English and in Portuguese. It'll give you a background of Brazil's context in the agriculture sector, but also how we can utilize the Climate Bonds transition principles and hopefully provide the country with the fundamental requirements for a transition plan which could be both credible and ambitious. And if you finished up with this podcast, do check out the rest of our Spotify. We're bringing you daily updates around COP28, and there's always talking points in the world of sustainable finance. And we hope to have you there for the next episode. But for now, thanks so much for listening and take care.